Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Courage Conversation Show. I'm your host, Ashley Easter. I'm the founder and executive director of Courage 365, and I am so glad that you've decided to join us for a show tonight. We've been off for a summer break for two weeks, but we are back, and I have a great guest for you all to hear from tonight. His name is Zach Heiner, and he is the executive director of SNAP. Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, of which I sit as president or vice president on the board of the directors uh, for this wonderful organization. They're one of the oldest pro-victim organizations in the world, and they've been doing so much good work for years. Zach has come in as a fresh face, really up-leveling um, the movement, and I'm really excited to have him here tonight. Just going to read a quick bio and then invite him on to the show. So, Zach Heiner is the executive director of SNAP, Survivors Network of, of, of Those Abused by Priests. Um, as an advocate for survivors of sexual abuse, Zach began his career as an assistant for Barbara Blaine and David Colossi at SNAP before moving on to work at Prevent Child Abuse America. Zach is the director of communications at PCA America before returning to lead SNAP in 2018. Zach is a graduate of James Madison College in Michigan State Virgin uh, University. Sorry, my dyslexia gets me every time. That's why you all love me. That's why you all love me. Um, <laughs> and is a volunteer and board member for the Chicago Justice Project and is also a member of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. So he has quite an impressive bio and I know Zach personally. He has been a friend and colleague probably, I guess, since 2018 when he came on board with SNAP. It's been such an honor to um, you know, work together, to see the work that he's doing. He's really creating a lot of change in the world and, um, yeah, really helping SNAP do that in a beautiful way. So, Zach, I'd like to just go ahead and invite you on to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me here, Ashley. I'm honored. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have you here. Actually, I'm kind of surprised that we haven't had you on the show before this. Like, it seems like it's so natural. I can't believe we haven't done this before. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know, it's always good to save good things for later. So, <laughs> Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just want to express my appreciation for all that you do at SNAP. You do such great work. And I know that you. um, your leadership has really helped many, many survivors, you know, whether it's planning the SNAP conferences, talking with survivors, doing um, press releases and all the other things behind the scenes, like you are really helping this ship move in a positive direction and super thankful for that. Um, I would like to just kind of jump into the interview and ask yeah. you some things about the Catholic Church. Now, we do have some Catholic survivors in our audience. But a lot of our survivors have come from more of a evangelical background. Um, okay. And so there are some differences. Uh, I know growing up for me, we did not believe that Catholics were Christians. <laughs> because you're right, like, right. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they worship Mary. So um, I really didn't know that much about Catholicism. And so I don't think that a lot of our survivors understand how much the Catholic Church has impacted survivors of abuse across the spectrum, not just Catholic survivors. So one of the things I've noticed is that people often call 
the Catholic Church, like the the ones who came up with sort of the abuse cover-up playbook, if you will. Sure. And I wondered if you could kind of share some history on why some people say this and, um, you know, why they, how they played such an important and negative role for survivors as a community. Sure. You know, one thing that I might start with, you know, you mentioned that most of the folks in the audience are from evangelical backgrounds. And so you're probably more used to decentralized kind of churches, you know, that are more pastor focused, community focused. Um, They can just pop up in areas of need. And, you know, that pastor, that flock really forms the basis of what that church believes and what they say and what they pronounce publicly. The Catholic Church is much different. It's very institutionalized. I mean, the Vatican is itself a foreign government. It is recognized by the United Nations. So everything that happens in Catholic churches, you know, obviously there's a little bit of of leeway when it comes to homilies from from the the pastor, but it's all top down. It's a very hierarchical, it's an ancient organization. It's all male and has been from its existence. So it is a very, um, how should I say, it's resistant to change because of that history and because of the hierarchical nature of the organization. And also the fact is, is that you know, like, for example, the U.S. has what we call the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is where all of the bishops and cardinals in the U.S. get together and discuss, you know, uh, what they want to do, what their ideas for the future of the U.S. church are. All of that is all well and good, but none of it matters without Vatican approval and intervention. So that is one thing where when we talk about a playbook, I think that's why we see the Catholic Church as more of the author of that, because you know, the clergy abuse crisis in America, you know, really kicked off in the late 80s with the case of Father Gilbert Gauthier in Louisiana. And he was a serially, serially abusive priest. He abused dozens of children. And what we what was seen in that, which later was um, amplified in 2002 by the spotlight team at the Boston Globe, which has since you know been memorialized into an Oscar winning film that I, rec- I recommend everybody see, yeah, that's a good is one. that there were specific things that church leaders would do when a priest had been accused of abuse. The first was to try to get, you know, very close to the family, tell them, you know, hey, let's keep this quiet. We want to make sure that things are okay for your child, and we don't want to hurt the church, and we don't want to make people uh, uh, not believe in the church, and you don't want people to not, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they would use that advantage of, of bringing the family in, and and making them sort of kowtow to what the the church wanted there and then of course uh the next step in the playbook is when a priest was suspended or removed for being an abuser well they they would tell the parish community you know oh father jones is on a sabbatical or you know father jones was sent off to a parish in need in north carolina you know they would never really be honest about why these men had left and Part and parcel with that is that they typically wouldn't be honest with the with the flock that they were coming to, right? It's not like they're going to say, "Oh, hey, we have a new priest and he's here because he abused a kid back in Georgia, and and right. now we had to send him up here." No, they they would always lie about the movement of these priests. And this is somewhat interesting. The the church publishes what they call the official Catholic directory every year, which is a listing of all the priests, religious order, brothers, nuns, etc., who are active in the church at that time. And one thing is interesting, if you look at um, you know, serially abusive priests, famously abusive priests, right? Um, you can see in the in the years where an accusation had been made, 
that year in the official Catholic directory, it'll have their location listed as as on sabbatical or or uh, they wouldn't list the parish, for example, where they abused that. So they would even obfuscate the work history of this of these men in their own official records. Mm. So this is this has been used for a long time, and it sort of became formalized as the playbook. You know, despite the fact that this was obvious in cases across the U.S. and you know across the globe, it was really formalized in 2018 when Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro published the results of his investigation into six dioceses in Western Pennsylvania. And it's funny because the term uh, playbook, you know, you would think that comes from advocates like us or survivors or, or right. A.G. Shapiro himself. No, it was actually then Bishop Donald Wuerl of, of Pittsburgh who used that phrase himself in wow. internal church documents. In, so that, in like a positive you know, way. Right. You know, basically, wow. let's go by the playbook. So wow, it was wow. very much a uh, formalized, <laughs> as, as formal as something like that can be within the church. So it's really disturbing, um, you know, to think how long uh, this playbook had been followed, that it is still followed, we believe, in some cases. And, and most critically, again, that the church is a global institution and the advances and, and, and what we've seen here in the U.S. isn't necessarily reflective in places around the world. And, you know, we really worry about about the abuse of priests who were shifted from places like the U.S. or Canada to uh, far away, extremely Catholic countries like the Philippines, uh, mm. where priests are just treated with with pure deference that they really don't have here today in the U.S. Wow. Wow. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. I I had used the term playbook, and I also assumed that it was an advocate word. And I think when I was yeah. even speaking to you, I put it in quotation marks. But to know that they internally have named it the playbook is it just shows the the boldness and the intentionality yeah. of the cover ups. Exactly. Because I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have been um, I don't know if I want to use the word brainwash, but maybe that's the right word something like that to believe that, you know, the Catholic Church just does this because they think it's right and it's just sort of naturally happened and if mistakes were made, it's because they weren't really trained. And But no, actually, this is a system that they use over and over again. And then I've seen that happen in like the Southern Baptist Convention. I've seen that happen right. in the Methodist Church. And so it's really interesting to see how kind of like franchises almost like we wrote the playbook and now we have these other franchises and I laugh so I don't cry it's really a right. tragic thing um but wow it's just it's so stunning um and you know I think like you had mentioned a lot of people who are you know in you know maybe a more evangelical or orthodox type of Christian faith may sure. not be aware that not only is there like the Catholic Church in the U.S., but it is also like a state and recognized mm -hmm. by the U.N. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's important for people to realize when they are seeing what we have to come up against as survivors and advocates, because it's like a whole country. And yep. I don't want to get into like conspiracies and stuff, but I, I believe that they have a ton of money and you know some from like different um you know nazi gold and you know just things like that that are speculated mm -hmm. that they have more money than 
anybody can really fathom um, that they have. And that can be strategically used against anybody who they see as a threat. Um, and it's just, ugh, it's heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. It's, it's absolutely right. And, and one thing I would add a little bit that makes it slightly more nuanced, you know, about the Vatican being its own country and the church being its own country mm -hmm. is that, you know, when they operate here in the United States, obviously everyone has to, you know, follow U.S. law, right? right. But they also have to follow canon law, official church law, which is the law that rules the Vatican. And it's somewhat akin to like when an ambassador from Germany is here. Uh, you know, of course, they're they're going to follow our laws, too. But they have their own laws that they follow, their own culture to which they follow. And so there's that weird element of, mm. you know, we've seen this been used as a conspiracy, for example, in, in political campaigns. When mm -hmm. Famously, when Kennedy was running for president, the, the uh, conspiracy was, oh, well, we can't elect John Kennedy because he'll make us beholden to the Catholic Church, a foreign government. So there's some element of that that's worked itself into the American mm -hmm. ethos. But, but when it comes to this, people tend to forget. I mean, you mentioned... Um, you know, the responses of people who, who may be brainwashed or, or very, you know, taken with the church. And I think to that point, one thing you'd often see is, oh, well, that just happened in Boston. You know, that was a couple of bad guys. That was just a guy down there in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just these bad guys when, as we're talking about now, you know, this is clearly an international issue that right. has been somewhat codified by the church. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like you said, you can only laugh. Otherwise, you cry. Right, exactly. It's just so overwhelming. And um, I was reading that there's documentation of Catholic priests abusing children like to, from the 11th century. So like this isn't something oh, sure. new. We've been like looking at this and um, building advocacy movements around it in the fairly recent history. But this has been going on for a long, long time. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, so no wonder they're so good at the cover-ups because they have had many, many years to practice. And no wonder other denominations would look to them as a source of guidance in this issue if they also want to cover up abuse. Um, so yep. yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because like I said, growing up, my faith community really didn't believe that Catholics were Christian. And yet <laughs> <laughs> they would pull from that playbook on different <laughs> situations and so it's it's fascinating really really um troubling um but maybe we can talk a little bit about how they throw around throw around their power whether that's um political power or maybe they use yeah. monetary power but like to to actually create laws and support laws that are not good for victims um and what I've learned in the last couple years is that it's not just bad for um, Catholic survivors, but these laws apply to all survivors. So it's really all, uh, all of our fight. Yep. Yeah, there's two two main things I think of when I talk about that. And it's funny because you said political power and monetary power. And in the U.S., I kind of conflate those. The more wealthy yeah. you are, yeah. the more political power you have, the more that yeah. you can do. Um, and, and that is what we have seen specifically the church spent uh um uh i want to say it was forbes who did the um study but I, I think i'm incorrect on that it was either forbes or business insider but they tracked that the u.s that the um, u.s catholic church had spent 10 billion dollars lobbying against laws that would make it easier for survivors to bring lawsuits against um 
not just their abusers, but the institutions that enabled them, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing to sue a destitute priest. It's quite another to be able to sue the institution that trained him and that covered up his crimes, right? So yeah. there, there's an element, and, and real quick, before we go further, I want to say that civil lawsuits and opening statute of limitations reform is not solely about financial compensation and ensuring that survivors get something, you know, monetarily for what they experience. A, that's not wrong for survivors right. to want that, especially when we think about the fact that dealing with trauma is expensive and survivors yeah. have typically had to expend a ton of money. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, exactly right. So, so there's, there's, it's often used as a, oh, those survivors are just money grubbing. They just want, you know, money, blah, blah. That's not right. But more to the point is that when those cases are allowed to be brought in civil court, we're able to get information out about how long were these men abusing, you know, in what communities were they abusing? what men knew about and were enabling this abuse. And yeah. it, particularly that latter point for me is really important because it's one thing, you know, there are always going to be sort of sick people who seek out opportunities that put them in proximity with children and abuse mm -hmm. them, right? Absolutely. But the people who, the, who make the strategic decisions to, to put those men in different positions, you know, to, to protect their own reputation and minimize blowback against the institution they're representing, that is just as evil and reprehensible, in my opinion. And those people need to be held accountable. And that is one major thing that civil lawsuits do. So obviously, the church spends a lot of money trying to defeat statute of limitations reform and window legislation. Mm. And honestly, they were, they, they, they still are the big winners in this fight. But I think post 2018, uh, we've seen a lot of change in this and we've seen uh, windows have opened up um, just this year in places like Louisiana and Arkansas, you know, right. not the kind of places that you'd think would be, you know, at the forefront of, of um, bringing justice for abuse right. survivors. But, you know, New York, California, New Jersey, um, massive states, there's other states right now with uh, window legislation going on uh, pennsylvania maryland are debating it so yeah. there's opportunities right now in legislate legislatures for for survivors to push forward the problem is we're going against a, a monolith in the catholic mm -hmm. church and then of course the insurance industry as well right but the and other just one... for anybody who's not familiar the statute of limitations is basically if you've experienced abuse and um, there's a statute of limitations on it, it means that you have to report that abuse or sue that abuser, depending on if you're doing criminal or civil, within a certain time frame. And yep. what we know about trauma is that um, a lot of times it takes years for somebody to process that trauma, feel safe enough to talk about it, and then get up the courage and support system to be able to actually you know, bring their abuser to court. And so when they put this statute of limitations here, often um, the victim is still in full on recovery mode um, and they're not even in a mental state where they can, you know, move forward to get justice for themselves because they're just in the midst of trauma. And so the laws that are, we're trying to pass are allowing them to have a larger window of time, removing statute of limitations. So if they have the proof to do it, they can sue anybody at any time and mm -hmm. not putting that um, barrier on it. And so I think a lot of our survivors and advocates know that, but just wanted to clarify before you go on, because that's such an important thing. And it doesn't just impact Catholic survivors. It impacts all survivors when they when they do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I have to go back really quick. I misspoke. I think I said 10 billion 
when I said church lobbying. It's ten million, which 10 is still million. a massive amount of money. Not yeah. as much as I. I don't know. As soon as I said that, I was like, this is wrong, but I'm still rambling. So, but anyway, I want, you're absolutely right. What you just said. And I want to add on that, um, our partner organization that we work with, they're, they're wonderful people at, uh, child USA, a national yeah. think tank on child abuse prevention and intervention has done a study. And what they determined was that the average age of the survivor coming forward in the United States is 52. Mm. That's a long, long time to yeah. live with trauma on your own. Yeah. And when you look at the laws of most states, like we're talking about these statute of limitations laws, most of them were something like, oh, within five or 10 years of your 18th birthday is when you yeah. have to come forward, which for a legislator who you know isn't trauma informed, which sadly is most of our legislators, but you know, in a vacuum, they might think, oh, okay, you know, you've got 10 years after you turn 18, that's enough time for you to learn, blah, blah. I could empathize with why they thought this made sense. But again, as our understanding and knowledge mm -hmm. of trauma and, and how it affects our brain and neurodevelopment yeah. has gone along, we know that this time frame is just far, far too short. And so what we're seeing now is states like Vermont completely eliminated statute of limitations mm -hmm. for childhood sexual abuse because they recognized, hey, this is something that it takes a long time to deal with. It is a form of trauma, and we want these court doors to be open to survivors when they're ready for them to come forward. So I think that's a really great trend, and it's coming into you know agreement with the science, which is important. Right. Yeah, and for any naysayers, you know, it is extremely difficult to prove a sexual assault. It is extremely yes, it is. difficult. So it's not like people are, you know, after. 40 years coming up with stories and throwing innocent priests in jail. Now, it's extremely right. difficult to prove a sexual assault. But if you have all of the ability to do that, if you have the evidence, you know, those kinds of things, like, why would we block somebody from doing it? Like, we're not, exactly. it is extremely difficult for anyone to go to jail for a sexual assault. Well, I would say maybe with the exception of black men, a lot of times they are um, unjustly sentenced, but, um, it's we need to allow this for victims for justice reasons, um, 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a critical thing. And one thing that you've said a couple of times that, that is exactly right. And is one reason why the Catholic Church having such an outsized impact on these on these laws is so frustrating is that th these laws affect all survivors of childhood abuse. Those those were abused in public schools, those were, who were abused in Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, after school sports programs, these kind of things. So for the church to have such an impact on these laws to protect themselves. I mean, there, there's mm -hmm. there's no way that they're arguing for SOL in a in a way that supports survivors or children. Um, it, it's very frustrating. But right. Right. and then I mentioned at the beginning one other um, you know piece of legislation that I sort of wanted to talk about, and that's the issue of mandated reporting and and mm -hmm. clergy as mandated reporters. And this is another one in which the Catholic Church has an outsized impact because of the Catholic Church's view on confession and the sanctity of confession and the idea that whatever uh, a sinner says to their priest in confidence to absolve themselves of their sins is not something that a priest can share with anybody, especially mm -hmm. legal entities. So wow. you'll have situations where claims of abuse are um, said to have been brought up during confession, and therefore the church can't talk about them, can't act on them, can't report them to, to law authorities. And we've seen this happen, especially recently, there have been some really awful cases uh, out west. There was one in um, New Mexico 
of a Mormon family where a uh, a man confessed to his bishop, I believe they're called, which mm-hmm. is essentially the same thing as a, as a local pastor, but confessed yeah. to his bishop that he was sexually abusing his children. Mm-hmm. And rather than get those children out of the home and protect mm-hmm. them from the trauma they were experiencing, uh, for I want to say it was another five years, the bishop mm-hmm. kept trying to work with this man and bring him closer to God so he would stop abusing his children. And it's just absolutely horrific mm-hmm. that there were adults who were aware of of the crimes being committed but chose not to do anything and then it's enraging that that inaction was protected by the law because in so many states clergy are considered mandated reporters but there is a uh, mm-hmm. loophole where if there is that confession or if it's under the the uh i can't remember what they what the term is for when it's not catholic but like you know the sanctity of the conversation right yeah they don't have to actually report. There's only two mm-hmm. states in the US, uh, two entities in the US, because one of them is um, Puerto Rico, in which clergy are just straight up mandated reporters. You have to report, we don't care about confession. So wow. that's one thing where it's a little bit less of an issue, but it's still a significant issue that in my view, it makes no sense for someone to be able to confess their their ongoing crimes to somebody else and not have legal authorities involved just because you know the person I confess to is wearing a Roman collar. That's just right. that doesn't logically follow to me, and is a problem that needs to be fixed in the U.S. Right, definitely. And uh, again, this is another one that isn't just for you know Catholic tradition. Right. You know, I've seen that used in evangelical churches, maybe not so much the seal of the confessional, but more so in the counseling settings. Yeah. And pastors will set up their counseling sessions almost pretending that they are therapists or that they could take a role of a therapist when they're not equipped or qualified and also don't have the same mandatory reporting, um, you know, onus on them. And so a victim will come and they'll be silenced. Spiritual abuse will be used to manipulate them. And then the pastor will never report. And it's, it's something tragic. And what I would love for our survivors who again, are mainly evangelical, um, come from that. They may not be evangelical anymore. Most of our audience is not anymore, but, um, guys, it's important to know about the stuff that the Catholic church is doing because it affects you too. It may feel like it's this big entity that because there's a lot of separation and division between Protestants and Catholics, that this doesn't matter for you and yours, but it does. It is intrinsically connected. And also our Catholic brothers and sisters who have been abused, we should also be, you know, having their backs as well. But just knowing that this is a a holistic thing that really affects many, many people. Thank you for bringing all that to light, Zach. That's super, super helpful. Um, and then, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this, you know, I don't have a lot of information about it and we don't have to go in depth, but there was just that huge, um, discovery. And I do put that in quotation marks because Uh somebody knew about it, but, um, the mass graves found in Canada, um, around the indigenous residential schools. And I wondered if you could just briefly share a synopsis of what is going on and also like, do you think this is the only grave, uh, mass grave that we're going to find connected to the Catholic? Well, the answer to that 
latter question is no. And it goes back to with what you said at the very beginning about putting discovery in quotation marks, because as we know, you know, residential schools, first off, are schools in Canada in, in um, typically indigenous areas, which were somewhat used as, I hate to say it, but sort of like re-education centers, a place to force assimilation of culture, uh, elimination of indigenous yeah. cultures, very similar to what we saw you know, happen here in the US, things like the Trail of Tears, those kind of things. You know, this is, this is a, a Canadian version of it in a sense. They were often run by the Catholic Church. Um, mm -hmm. And it was discovered, and I believe Cam Loops was the first one this year, where a mass grave of children, you know, was, was discovered. And for me, you know, a Midwestern white dude from the U.S. who doesn't pay attention, you know, and doesn't actively learn about the plight of indigenous people in another country, to me, it was a, a brand new shocking discovery. But as I've learned more about this issue and have talked with advocates um, from Canada and indigenous advocates, this has been somewhat of an open secret for a long time in Canada, and especially among these indigenous populations, you know, that they knew that their children were being taken from them and, and were not coming home and that the answers that were why they weren't coming home weren't satisfactory. Right. In uh, earlier this decade, in the 2010s, Canada undertook what they called a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so uh, a federally initiated investigation to just to really try to uncover all the wrongs that had been done against First Nations people in their country by the government. And I, I have Ooh, to honestly I'm say, I am, as hell about that. <laughs> I applaud them for for trying, and I'd love to see at least the federal government in the U.S. do something similar. Yeah. But but goodness knows that's not going to happen anytime soon. Right. But, in that, in that, uh, the resulting study, which was released in 2015, they had they recognized that there were more than 6,000 um, indigenous children that they found in various graves throughout the country. Uh, so again, this was even something that they had already aware of a few years ago, you know, mm -hmm. and yet it didn't grab that attention, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's coming up again and it's starting to grab more attention. I, I, I do think because you know, the plight of children and the issue of child abuse and has been more in the news the past couple of years. And people are more um, talking about these issues of sexual violence and the plight of children. And so I think that's why it's making such big news now. But I was so shocked to learn about how many people have been talking about this exact issue for a long time and being wow. ignored and not being listened to. Wow. And, you know, one thing that, um, the United States Secretary of the Interior is a woman named Deb Haland, and she herself is a, a Native American. And she had a, a, a quote that was very profound and, and depressing. And mm. she said, what happened north of the border, we are sure happened south of it, which is to you know recognize that, again, the U.S. government did very similar things mm -hmm. to the Native populations here. And so what I worry about is where did this happen in our country? What are we doing to, to find out about it and to make things right for those families? Um, mm -hmm. My answer, my guess is not enough. And I think that's something that we need to be talking about is mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we empower these communities? How do we listen to them uh, uh, and, and take action that benefits them and, and uncovers these wrongs? Because goodness knows there's so many of them. Wow, yes. Mm. That's just a, such a weighty thing. Like all like all this conversation is is weighty you know children mm -hmm. vulnerable people being abused being murdered yep. 
it's um, so heavy. And I think sometimes it's easier for us to compartmentalize um, and just go about our lives. And if it hasn't directly affected us or somebody that we love to just kind of be like almost blocking it out because it's too hard to look at, but we've got to look at it. We've got to start listening because these things can still be happening. It's not just something that happened in the past. We have laws in place to allow a lot of bad, negative, painful, abusive, murderous things to still happen in our country um, and countries around the world. So with such powerful institutions at play, what are some practical steps that people can do to support the survivor movement? Sure. I think that's a great question. It's an important question, and it's one that there's a lot of answers to. And, you know, one of the first, and it it, it seems pithy, and it sounds pithy, but I, I really don't mean it that way, which is to talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things. I, I've been working in, in child abuse and neglect prevention for 11 years now, and I am constantly talking about this issue. And And one thing that you know, we've talked about in the past in terms of social norms change and, and bringing people, uh, uh, you know, to be better partners and allies in this fight is that they need to be aware of it. And and yes. you said, you know, you brought this up a minute ago. These are weighty conversations. These aren't the kind of mm. things that people want to talk about around the dinner table or at holidays or at barbecues. But that's how we learn. That's how we grow. And that's how we become better as the people is by talking about these uncomfortable things. And um, it's the kind of thing that we need to do more of is is talk about these issues. And it also helps, you know, normalize the issue, normalize the idea that that sexual violence is occurring and it's occurring today and it's occurring where we live. You know, there's always uh, a desire, I think, to other a lot of these these stories. Oh, it happened in that state or it happened at that university or it happened at that church, not mine. The sad fact is it likely is. And so if we really want to be able to be better for survivors and help prevent these kind of cases. Uh, what we have to do is make survivors feel comfortable by normalizing these conversations, by being open um, to learning about trauma and learning about ways that we can be more trauma informed. Um, so that is really a silly, you know, small-ish kind of thing. But really, read read these stories and talk about them with your loved ones is is a big step. Uh, a second one would be. You know, as we've talked about, these these institutions are very powerful and they are wealthy, and mm-hmm. they win in in the you know halls of the legislature and in the courtrooms because of their money. But advocates, allies, and survivors win by being bigger and there being more of us. And so, the more people who are contacting your local legislators and saying, "Hey, you know, what do laws look like that protect children and vulnerable people in my state?" You know, what happens when someone get gets raped? What's the legal process look like? And the more that we have people actively asking about this and making sure that legislators know that they care about it means that legislators who their number one concern is being reelected, they too will start to care about it. And the fact is, is so many of these issues are really state level issues, statute of limitations reform. That's a state level issue. How your schools, how your publicly funded institutions implement implement prevention and treatment plans. That's a state level issue. So Mm -hmm. being involved in knowing who your local state senator is, knowing who your state representative is and being willing to contact them, ask them what they're doing on these issues and find out how you can volunteer to help them. 
that is a major way that that we can turn the tide in these legislative fights for sure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one other one, this sort of goes back to my first point, but this is for, you know, those of you who are more social media inclined, but so many disclosures and so many stories are first told now on the internet and online because it's easier for folks. You know, you don't have the face staring at you in the room, but you can tell your story of abuse to Twitter. Yeah. And being someone who can support, signal boost those stories, be a comforting word, um, you know, a long time thing that uh, the SNAP founders told um, SNAP volunteers to do was when you read an article about clergy abuse, leave a comment at the bottom saying, hey, we support you. We're so proud of you for coming forward. And it seems so small, but I have literally had people email me and call me saying, after I you know, put my tweet out there and I saw Snap retweet it and I had a bunch of people say you know, that you're brave and that they supported me and it, it made a difference. And it really does make a difference because coming forward and disclosing is such a terrifying experience that unfortunately, has been met with negativity for most of our, you know, history, really. I mean, it's only really in the past few decades that we have begun to actually treat people who experienced abuse and rape and violence um, as people and not damaged individuals, you know? And I think the more that we do, again, to, to shift social norms around this issue is by making sure these folks know that we encourage them to come forward and that when they do, that there are people who will support them and that there are wonderful organizations around there that exist to help them. You know, this is one of them. Rain has been doing wonderful work for decades. You know, Darkness to Light, they're a little bit more on the prevention um, and education side, but they're doing great work. You know, SNAP, we have our support groups. There's NASC. I mean, there are places for survivors to turn. And the more that we're aware of those places and we can tell people like, hey, this is out there, there's something for you, uh, they'll know they're not alone. And I really, I really believe that reducing those feelings of isolation and loneliness and fear is one of the biggest things that we can do to support survivors as they come forward. Thank you for that. I, I totally agree. Talk about the issue, contact your representatives to make actual change. And then when you see survivors talking about their stories, whether it's online or in, in person, make sure you have their back and let them know that. Really, really powerful stuff. Zach, where can people get to know you and your work or get to know SNAP? I know, I know about SNAP, but I'd love for you to share from your perspective as executive director. Absolutely. Yes. Please connect with us, learn more about us, sign up for our newsletter, all that kind of stuff at snapnetwork.org. That's our, our main website. You can find our information on there. You can find our press statements. You can find survivor stories. You can find the resources that we've put together for, for survivors and allies on our website there. We also are very active on Twitter and Facebook. Um, at Snap Network is the way to find us on both of those. And our new communications manager is getting us off the ground with Instagram. So you Woo! can find us there. <laughs> Same handle. Yep. Try to find survivors in every single place that we can uh, and be there to support them. So we're getting off the ground on social media. Um, but that's the best way. And if you ever want to, you know, contact me personally, it's mm -hmm. very easy to do so. Uh, my email address is Z and then H-I-N-E-R at snapnetwork.org. So first initial, last name at snapnetwork.org. If you have questions, comments, um, preferably nicer than rude ones, but I'll take all, <laughs> send me an email. Thank you so much, Zach. And thank you for your time today and for your service to the advocacy community. I 
count it a great honor and pleasure to be able to be on the same team working with you. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Ashley. I'm so honored to be here. I am grateful to you for the wonderful work that you are doing. You're a shining example of the way that we need to make change. And so I'm honored to be here with you today. Thank you so much. And everybody, make sure that you go ahead and follow Courage365. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Um, if you find us on YouTube, we have a lot of back episodes of this show. And of course, we have back episodes on our website, courage365.org slash videos. And just for visiting our website, you can download our free ebook, Five Keys to Living a Life of Courage to help you take the next most courageous steps in your survivor journey. And of course, if you are in imminent danger, if you know or suspect child abuse, please contact the authorities. But for other situations, we encourage you to go to courage 365 uh, org and click our need help tab. We have a long list of resources, hotlines, and other um, encouraging and supportive websites to really be a support system for you. And we're really excited to say that we have just come out with a podcast, which is all of these episodes in podcast form. So if you prefer to listen to these while you're driving in the car or um, taking a walk, something like that, and you don't want to have the video screen up, you can just find us wherever you get your podcast. Just Google or just um, search Courage 365 Courage Conversations and you will find those episodes. Thank you everybody so much for tuning in for this important conversation. Please go ahead and hit the share button so other people can gain this valuable information. And as always, live with courage.